King of kings and Lord of lords, we thank you, Father, for the greatness of your power, the greatness of the Holy Spirit, and we thank you, Father, that your word is given to us to fit and feed and develop our spirits. We thank you, Father, that we will leave this place more and more conformed to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Notice verse 12, how it identifies specifically that death entered the world by sin. I want to talk to you this morning about healing in the cross of Jesus. If death in, entered the world by sin, if sin was the open door whereby death entered, then what possible remedy could be available to the church, to the body of Christ, that bypasses the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross? In other words, if death, which includes sickness and disease, you know as well as I do that there's built-in healing into the body. If we cut our hands, the wound will scab and heal. But it's not like there's a healing gene. The healing power of God is a direct result of the Holy Spirit that dwells in our bodies because our bodies are the habitation of our spirits. If Jesus ministered healing to the sick when he was here on the earth, and we certainly know that he did. In fact, the Bible says he healed all that were sick in several occasions, several instances. How could God justly provide healing for the physical body without a substitute, without the price of sickness 
and disease being paid through substitution. Now, it's a little hard to see unless you're a Greek scholar or deal a lot with the Greek language through the concordance. But this is the only time this word atonement is used in the, in the New Testament. There's a lot of times, many times that it's used in the Old Testament, and rightly so. But an atonement is covering over. See, when the Day of Atonement took place for Israel in the Old Testament, the lamb was sacrificed, the blood of the lamb was, was spilled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and it covered their sins for a one-year period of time. They didn't have the luxury of participating in one day of atonement and that lasting forever. It was a year-to-year -year thing. Well, now, why was it a year-to-year -year thing if it was something God instituted? Because it was just a covering over of sin. It was not a remission or a doing away with sin. But the redemptive work of Jesus is about redemption. It's about remission of sins. The removal of sin. Not just covering over, but the removal of sin. And so in this passage in Romans chapter 8, or Romans chapter 5, it talks about reconciled. Being reconciled. This word reconciled is used two times in the same verse, verse 10, where if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That word reconciled means a mutual exchange. It means the completeness of one thing was uh, exchanged for the completeness of something else. Jesus came and took upon himself, according to the scripture, he took upon himself our iniquities, our transgressions, but then he also took upon himself our sickness. He took upon himself the punishment for, of poverty here in this earth. And that mutual exchange was made so that he accepted through the supernatural working of God, he accepted our sins and our sicknesses, and we accept his righteousness and health. Now, the word atonement is a word that is the result of these words reconciled. In the Greek language, this, these words translated reconciled are the root foundation for the word that's translated atonement. And it simply means that because of the substitutionary work of Jesus, we now enjoy the life and the blessings of God. Now I want you to go with me to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12, which tells us the beginning or the institution of the Passover. I'm going to start in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This Passover thing is so important that it changed the Jewish calendar. Speaking unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall be made your count for the lamb. For the sake of time, let's skip down a little bit up to verse 11. It says, and thus shall you eat it. It just gave the details of how it was to be prepared. 
It wasn't to be boiled or baked, but only to be roasted. Verse 11, And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. Now I want you to notice how much the Passover was uh, joined together. With the, the journey that the people are going to take. God knows. They don't know yet. The people don't know yet. But God knows that they're on a, uh, about to take a two and a half year journey. It took about two and a half years from the time that they were delivered from the bondage in Egypt. Through the, par the parting and the passing through the Red Sea. They went to what's known as Mount Sinai where they encamped there for a certain period of time where God delivered the law, of, uh, the Old Testament law to them. We usually call it the law of Moses. But it's about two and a half years that they're going to be in the wilderness, traveling through the wilderness, staying in the wilderness or traveling through it to get to the promised land. They don't have the opportunity to stop at Costco on the way. They have to take with them everything they own. If they're going to eat anything, it's going to be because of what they take with them or what they're able to scavenge from the land that they go through. Do you know what a blessing it is for us to be able to go to the grocery store and buy a loaf of bread? We don't have to grow the wheat. We don't have to grind the wheat. We don't have to bake it ourselves. But all of these things that we are blessed not to have to do because of the world we live in, they were without. You may remember that one of the fallback positions that Pharaoh took when Moses went to them, to him, and said, let my people go. At one point, Pharaoh said, well, okay, you can go, but leave your stuff behind. Leave your flocks and your herds and everything behind. Well, he, know, he knows, Pharaoh knew, that that would cripple the people of Israel. They would have to return. They'd have to come back. But that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was to deliver them once and for all and lead them into the promised land. So again, verse 11, thus you shall eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. There's more mention made about the journey and the importance of eating the lamb, the Passover lamb, to provide strength for the journey than there is about the blood. The blood is very simply identified as the mark on the doorpost 
that identify these people in this house as being of God. They couldn't be children of God yet, but they were servants of God, as the Bible tells us in other places. We always focus on the blood. We always focus on the importance of having blood on the doorposts, and you can't overemphasize how important that is, that for sure. But the instruction that God gave the children of Israel had, concerning the Passover and the institution of the Passover had more to do with the, the journey and the strength that they needed for the journey than anything else. So the children of Israel ate of the Passover lamb and the death of the firstborn of Egypt took place that night. Now, folks, I want to mention something to you. Don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to mention something to you. And that is, so much of the church world seems to think that God uses sickness and disease to instruct us, to teach us something. Now, we may not know what that something is because the Lord moves in mysterious ways, you know. But a lot of the church world is of the opinion that God uses sickness and disease. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would he need to? See, the death of the firstborn didn't include sickness and disease in any form whatsoever. It was the angel of death that passed over the houses of, Egypt, of the Jews, but exacted judgment, righteous judgment, upon the children of Israel and all the families of Israel. I'm sorry, all the families of Egypt. The angel of death was of God. Now his reason for sending the angel of death, as I say, was to execute judgment. He executed judgment and passed judgment on all those that were enemies of Israel, his people. And remember part of what he told Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. God has a perfect right to exercise judgment, to pass judgment on mankind in any and every way that he sees fit. And so he passed judgment on Egypt. And of course you remember what happened. Pharaoh let the people go. The people then went to the Egyptians that they were familiar with. And according to the King James translation, they borrowed silver and gold. Actually, if you look that word up, it means they made a demand on their time of service as slaves. Now the people of Egypt had just experienced the ten plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn. And money was the least important thing in their lives at that point. They loaded the, the Israelites down with anything and everything that they could carry, anything and everything of value that they could carry. And so the Bible tells us that the Israelites spoiled the Egyptians. That seems to indicate that they took such spoil that would be the result or the same as the result of defeating them in battle 
and spoiling their enemies in that way. So then they start off on this journey. You know how it goes. Pharaoh changes his mind, comes after them. They are, the Red Sea, the waters of the Red Sea are parted for Israel to go across on dry land. But then when Pharaoh's armies chase in after them, the waters come together and destroy the armies. That brings us to chapter 15. Verse 1, then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has thrown into the sea. It goes on to talk about the goodness of God, the strength of God, the deliverance of God, and so forth. Skip down to verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. I think that means bitterness. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which he had, when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And he said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now notice that last phrase, I am the Lord that healeth thee. That word healeth is in present perfect tense. Now what that means is it's talking about, in this case, God's healing power, God's healing mercy, in past tense, present tense, and future tense. So just as this is a, a, an example of God revealing himself to the children of Israel, it's also a reference to the fact that through the Passover, God healed the sick. He's literally saying, I am the one that, that healed you. We know in Psalm 105, it tells us that God, this is the part of the, the Psalm of Moses being spoken by those that were in the experience or had the experience or had just witnessed the experience of what God did through the Passover. It says he led them forth with silver and gold. And there was not one people among them. Not one feeble person among them. Folks, God healed a nation. People oftentimes argue about or stress over whether healing belongs to them. And how great an display of God's power it would take to deliver them from sickness and disease. But God heals nations. So here where it says that God revealed himself 
as the Lord that healeth thee. The Lord that healeth thee. Well, we know that Jesus said that, or the Bible says of Jesus that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that would fit there. We also know that God said of himself, I am God, I change not. So that would indicate that he's always the God that heals us. Now there are, Dr. Schofield, who's a uh, leading Baptist scholar of a previous generation, he has a, a Bible that was gathered together with his notes, it's the Schofield Reference Bible. And being a Baptist minister, he didn't believe in healing. Or maybe I should qualify that. He knew that God had the power to heal, but he didn't believe that it belonged to everybody. He taught throughout his ministry in his lifetime that healing was not, physical healing for the body was not in the atonement. It was not something that Jesus paid the price for on the cross. But in his notes concerning this uh, scripture in Exodus chapter 15, he points out some things that are absolutely true. He said that Jehovah was a term that was used exclusively by God to reveal his redemptive purposes. In that, he said that God, that the word Jehovah for God literally means that God is the self-evident one who reveals himself to mankind. And there are seven different places in the Old Testament where God names himself. He's known as our righteousness, Jehovah our righteousness, Jehovah our peace, Jehovah our banner, Jehovah our victory, Jehovah our provider, and Jehovah our healer. Now folks, if God identifies himself as our healer, as part of who he is, then there's no way he could abandon his position or his office or his work as healer for the physical sins and physical ailments of the body. Then he could abdicate and, and change or end his role, his office of being our righteousness. And Dr. Schofield, along with many others, taught that all of the six other redemptive names of God were still in effect and still overseen by God, but somehow or another God let the healing power that heals our bodies, somehow or another he's not that anymore. Well, if God never changes, how could that be possible? He brought them forth with silver and gold. And there was not one feeble among them. Not one feeble among them. Not one. Now this is something that took place when the Passover was instituted. But 2 Chronicles chapter 30 tells us about Hezekiah. When Hezekiah became king of Israel... 765 years later, uh, after the institution of the Passover, Hezekiah comes to power as a young man. He's 25 years old when he becomes king. 
and he serves as king for 29 years. But when he became king of Israel, Israel had let go of the things that the previous generation knew. They had stopped instituting the Passover. They had stopped observing it. And they had not followed the laws of God. So one of the first things Hezekiah does when he comes into office as king of Israel is he calls the scribes and commands them to go back and bring him the scrolls. And so for a period of time, he has them reading to him about the law of Moses and the things that God has commanded. And the children of Israel are so backslidden, they have turned away from God to such a degree that he had, yet, he had not even heard of the Passover. And when the scribes begin to read to him these things in Exodus chapter 12 concerning the Passover, that he issues a decree that Israel is going to go back and honor the things that God had said to them and had provided for them. One of the things that um, God tells Moses about the Passover, he tells them how to, to keep it historically active and to share it with their children as they come into the promised land. Well, somehow or another, that's fallen by the wayside. So when Hezekiah declares that they're going to go back to keeping the law of Moses and go back to keeping the Passover, including the Passover, there's a lot of work left to be done because the temple is in disrepair, so he has to clean it out. He has the priests to go and sweep the thing clean of all the filthiness and all the idol worship and other things that had been taking place there. And he repairs the, the doors to the tabernacle and then he sends out this decree throughout all of Israel that they're going to celebrate the Passover as God had instructed them. Now there are some things that Hezekiah did that were contrary to the instruction of the keeping of the Passover. One was they didn't do it at the right time. Hezekiah prayed for God to pardon them and forgive their sins and forgive the fact that they're not keeping the Passover at the right time, but they're so anxious to do it as, that, as God ignores the mistakes that they made or the failing, in this case, to keep the details of the Passover intact. And what it tells us is that when Hezekiah provided for the Passover to be kept, it says they kept the Passover and the Lord healed the people. In the same way that Israel was healed coming out of Egypt, the people in Hezekiah's day were healed through the Passover as well. Folks, it's also interesting to me 
how that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it tells us there are people in that church that Paul writes to, the churches in Corinth, where there are people that are weak and sickly, folks that have chronic ailments and illnesses. And because they don't rightly discern the Lord's body, that is, the meaning or the representation of the Lamb as being the body of Jesus that was broken for us. It says there are many that in the church as a result that were weak and sickly and many died prematurely. Now this says, we just read in Exodus chapter 12 that this was an ordinance and a statute. Those are at least one of the terms indicates a long-lasting or eternal commandment when it comes to the Passover. Now, I've got a question, and that is, if healing is not a part of the atoning work of Jesus, and by that I'm talking about going to the cross and being raised again from the dead after three days, if healing is not a part of the work of Jesus on the cross, then why does the Old Testament connect atonement with healing in so many places? We won't look at it, but you can take time to, to check this out for yourself. But in Leviticus chapters 14 and 15, it gives specific instructions of what a leper is to do if his leprosy is cleansed. And it includes the offering of a pigeon or a turtle dove and the shedding of the blood of the turtle dove under running water. And the, the atoning picture or illustration that's used there is the mixing of blood and water, which is a direct reference to Jesus on the cross. You remember when they pierced his side, there was blood and water that came out of his body. But the point that I want you to see about the lepers being cleansed is that God's the one that joins them together. Healing in the atonement, I mean. This is not a way that God is giving to the lepers to be cleansed. He's not saying if anybody contracts leprosy, then here's how you get healed of it. He's saying that if healing comes in some way or another, if nature provides healing for the lepers, their instruction is to go to the high priest because God has himself joined together the cleansing of the leper with the atonement. In other words, God doesn't want nature's conquering of a leprosy in the, the body of an individual to be thought of as just something that can happen. But instead, it's joined together with what God considers to be an atoning work. Now, if that were the case, why did God do that? If healing is not available to anybody and everybody, then why would God care what the healing of a leper, which is a great miracle, why would he care what the healing of the leper 
was thought to be one way or the other. In Numbers chapter 16, it tells us of Korah's rebellion. Korah and his household and his descendants during the time of the wilderness, early on in the time of the wilderness, after the children of Israel have tempted God and rejected the promised land, entering into the promised land under Moses. It says that Korah gathered to himself 250 people that were well known throughout the congregation of Israel. And they brought accusations against Moses. And they said, basically, why are you trying to put yourself in a position where you're better than us? We're all sanctified and holy by the work of God, not just you. And the phrase that they use is, you've taken too much on yourself. Well, Moses falls on his face before God because he knows the severity of the things that they've done. And so, according to God's instruction, they join themselves together. They all meet together the next day. And Korah, one of the accusations they make against Moses is that he kept them from going into the promised land. He said, we haven't made it to the promised land that you've told us about. Now, folks, if you remember in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, Moses is waiting for the people to make the decision on whether or not they're going to go into the promised land. And they choose to, to reject it. They refuse to go in because they don't believe they're strong enough militarily to take possession of the land. Well, they didn't have any army when they defeated the Egyptians. But anyway, back to Korah and his group. The next day they meet together. And Moses says to the people. If you were just to die a simple natural death. Then there wouldn't be any supernatural consequences. To your rebellion. But he said if I call for God to open the, the land where you are and you disappeared from the face of the earth and the land came back together then would you know that was the hand of God well that's what happened the land opened up and the people were destroyed they fell down alive into what the Bible calls the pit which was where the land was broken up I want you to notice that God didn't use sickness and disease to teach them something Then it says that fire came out of the Lord's mouth. Not sure exactly what that means. Whether it was just fire that fell from heaven or some other spectacular display. But it says that fire emitted from the Lord and killed these 250 people that Korah had gathered together with him. So that was a day that was certainly on everybody's mind, fresh on everybody's mind. But then the next day comes around and they come back to Moses and they blame him for killing Korah and all the 250 princes. Moses knows this is trouble. And so he tells Aaron to get a censer. And I, as I understand it, that's one of those little 
metal things that holds a fire that you put incense on. And he tells Aaron to go run through the crowd of people to make an atonement for them. It tells us that the plague had already begun. Again, this is not a plague of sickness and disease, but it's very similar to the angel of death in Exodus chapter 12. And it says that Aaron stood between the living and the dead to make an atonement for them. And the plague was stayed. Now why would healing come as a result of that which pertained to and illustrated the atonement? If the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, which everything was pointing toward anyway, how could the atonement of the Old Testament type and shadow be accurate if Jesus on the cross was not a means of the atonement that God had planned and fulfilled? Ten years goes by, and it brings us to Numbers chapter 19, where the people murmured against Moses, and they were tired of the promise, of, tired of the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, and they were very discouraged and so forth, as you could understand. But they continually, over and over again, allowed their frustration to get in their mouths. And they would speak against Moses and Aaron and those that, were, that made up Moses' inner circle. And it tells us that the result that time of their speaking against Moses was that fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, came in unto them. Now, folks, if you go back and you look at some of the things that God told Moses concerning his presenting himself before Pharaoh, one of the things that God told Moses was that he would send them, Israel, out into the wilderness where there were fiery serpents and poisonous snakes. So it's not like God had to create poisonous snakes to afflict the people. It's that his hand of protection was lifted because of their murmuring against Moses. Now the people recognized this because they finally come to Moses and say, we've sinned because we've spoken against you. In other words, they knew better. They just kept being their own worst enemy time and time and time again. And so God gives Moses brand new instruction. Never done this before. He tells him to make a brass, a brass serpent and put it on a pole. And he said, everybody that looks on this shall live. Now the word they use for looks on it, looketh upon it, I think is how King James translates it, is that they fix their glare, fix their gaze, their attention on the brass serpent and make sure that they hold their attention or it holds their attention so that they don't look away. Now the reason for that, again it's another type of how we receive the blessings of God we look at the unseen promise of God and not at the snakes at our feet. 
And so it, that's the way that Moses presents it. Moses creates the brass serpent and it tells us that everybody that looked on it and fixed their gaze upon the brass serpent and not on the circumstances at their feet were healed and lived. Now Jesus identifies that was a type of him. In John chapter, thir- uh, John chapter 3, verse 14, I believe it is, he says, Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So without a shadow of a doubt, the serpent of brass on the pole was a type of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but I think it's the American Medical Association and maybe other medical groups as well. Their logo, their symbol, is a serpent on a pole. So even the medical community recognizes that that story of healing and that story of an illustration of Jesus being lifted up on the cross was directly and specifically identified with healing the physical body. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. The first 14 verses of the scripture, that chapter, tells us about the blessings of God that will come to us by hearkening unto his word. Verse 15 starts with the curse. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all thy commandments, all his commandments, and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. He talks about being cursed in the city, in the field, the basket, and store, the fruit of their body and the fruit of their land being cursed. Skip down with me to verse 20. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee, until he has consumed thee from off the land, whether thou go to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with a sword, and with blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Now, folks, we need to make a comment here about the causative verbs versus permissive verbs. Dr. Robert Young, which was the foremost Bible scholar, Old Testament um, scholar concerning the Hebrew language in his day, which was two generations ago. He points out that in the Hebrew language, there's a permissive verb or permissive tense of the verb and not just the causative verb or causative tense. He says that verses of scriptures like these would be better translated, more accurately translated in the permissive sense rather than the causative sense. We just talked about the brass serpent on the pole and the fiery serpents entering into the the camp of the Israelites. There's no other time that it tells us that that happened 
the snakes coming into the camp, I mean. But that through their sin, God's hand of protection was lifted, not because God wanted to lift it, but because their words, the people of Israel's words, were the things that governed them because God gave man authority and didn't retain it for himself. So here, it's talking about the consequences, the catastrophic consequences, if you will, of choosing to disobey God's word or not giving place to his word. And he says the result of that will be sickness and disease that comes on them. Now he's not talking about a work of his own that brings this sickness and disease upon them. He's saying and warns them ahead of time, forewarns them numerous times over and over again that their own choice to disobey his co- and keep his commandments will result in the curse of the law. Skip down with me to verse 27. The Lord will smite thee or allow you to be smitten with the botch of Egypt and with the emeralds and with the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. I want you to realize that he's talking about incurable diseases here. He's not just talking about headaches. He's talking about incurable diseases. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness. And thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore. And no man shall save thee. Skip down a little bit further. We're just picking out the ones concerning healing or sickness and disease. Verse 35. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed. From the sole of thy foot unto the top of thy head. Go a little bit further. In verse 57, I believe it is. Verse 58. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this wonderful, glorious, and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and the the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and with sore sicknesses, and long continuance. Moreover, will he bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, And they shall cleave unto thee. Also every sickness. Everybody say every. Also every sickness and every plague. Which is not written in the book of this law. Then will the Lord bring upon thee. Or the Lord will allow thee. To experience. Until thou be destroyed. Galatians 3.13 says. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So it's telling us that all these sicknesses, 14 or 15 of which are specifically identified as leprosy and tuberculosis and great fever, scarlet fevers and so forth, along with skin diseases and mental issues, all these things are a part of the curse of of not keeping God's Old Testament law. But it tells us that Christ redeemed us from them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, which would include all these diseases and every other disease is not even named. So Christ has redeemed us from all sickness and disease. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Curses is everyone that hangeth on a tree. 
Notice the redemption or the breaking of these Old Testament curses come as a result of Jesus on the cross. How does anybody say, and we could give twice the number of examples and scriptures that we've already looked at. How could anybody say that the blood of Jesus being shed on the cross was not provided or did not provide for healing for the physical body? Matthew 8, 16 is, an old te- is a New Testament commentary, a Holy Ghost commentary on Isaiah 53. I, Matthew 8, 16, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Notice in verse 17 that the remedy for sickness is joined together and coupled with the remedy for sickness and disease. I don't think I said that right. Let me say that again. The remedy for sin, iniquities, was joined with the remedy for sickness and disease through the work of Jesus. He healed them all. Didn't leave one out. He healed them all. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Himself bare our infirmities and took our sicknesses. Folks, there's not one disease, there's not one sickness, there's not one variant of sickness that we have not been redeemed from by the blood of Jesus. We live in a day that for the last couple of years at least, has been dominated by fear of a sickness and disease. But if the word's true, we have nothing to fear. Isaiah chapter 54, I think it's verse 11, says, In thy righteousness I shall be established. Oppression shall not come nigh me, for I do not fear. And terror shall not come near me. If the devil can't make you afraid, he can't make you sick. Jesus understood that all sickness was of the devil. Never do we find Jesus stopping to pray about whether or not he should minister healing to someone. Because he knew all sickness and disease was of Satan. Acts 10.38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power 
who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. It says that he knew, he understood that everybody that was oppressed of the devil or everybody that was experiencing sickness and disease was under the oppression of the devil. That means everybody he ministered, ministered healing to was under the oppression of the devil concerning bodily sickness and disease. Now I want to close with this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 13. This is one of the examples of Jesus ministering healing. It's one of my favorites because there are times where Jesus just laid hands on people and healed them. There were times where he questioned them, asked if they believed he was able to do it, and so forth. And like in the case of the woman with the issue of blood, she initiated the healing, not him. She came in the press behind because she had heard that he was healing the sick. So she came behind him and touched his garment because she said, if I could touch but his clothes, I shall be healed. And so we see God's goodness and God's mercy at work in many of these examples. But this is one in Luke chapter 13 where it shows Jesus' attitude toward healing the sick. Verse 10, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bound together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And he said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, and then therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, notice Jesus is presenting his case, ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound low these 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said all these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Notice what it says again in verse 16. Jesus says, Ought not this woman be healed? Now if Jesus revealed the Father to us, then he's revealing God's attitude toward healing of sickness and disease. Ought not this woman be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? He gives two reasons why she should. The first is she's the daughter of Abraham. Well, we just mentioned in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. What we didn't tell you is in Galatians chapter 13, verse 29, it says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. If Jesus lives in your heart, then you are Abraham's seed. So God could say the same thing, and God's attitude would, must necessarily be the same toward us who are Christ. 
Therefore, Abraham's seed is what he said about the woman with the spirit of infirmity. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? Where so much of the church world is saying that we shouldn't approach God for healing from sickness and disease because healing is not in the atoning work of Jesus. God's attitude is, ought you not be healed? Since you're Christ, and therefore Abraham's seed. Second reason that he gives is because she's been under the oppressing influence of the devil for 13 years. Ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan is bound, whom Satan has bound, whom Satan has bound, lo these 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath. The devil wants to tell all of us that we're not worthy of, of healing for our physical bodies. Yeah, Jesus led us into his kingdom. He let us be part of his family. But he knew what a rotten Christian you were, you were going to be. He knew that you were going to deal in sin in various ways. And he tries to make you think that you've deserved whatever sickness and disease or whatever affliction comes against you. But that's not God's attitude. Jesus said again, Ought not this woman, because she's the daughter of Abraham and because Satan has oppressed her for these 13 years or 18 years. Therefore, she should be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Now, how did we become Abraham's seed? We accepted the work of Jesus on the cross as being for us. We've got the elements of the Lord's Supper in front of us here. We've got that which represents his body, which took stripes upon him to affect our healing from sickness and disease. And we have that which represents his blood. which everybody acknowledges that brings us into forgiveness of sins but more accurately it brings us into the remission of sin and Jesus said as often as we keep this this partaking of the Lord's Supper as often as we partake of the Lord's Supper we do show his death till he comes well, his death was the death on the cross. Folks, it's hard to realize and hard to imagine how someone could fail to see that healing was in the atonement. How can you ignore these truths, some of which we've identified from the scripture and read, how can you ignore the reality 
the absolute truth that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from spiritual death. He redeemed us from sickness and disease. He redeemed us from poverty. No matter, no matter what medical science says about any sickness and disease, you've got a greater immunity through the blood of Jesus than any sickness we know of or any other sickness that they come up with. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of sickness. Gentlemen, if you'll come forward, we'll serve communion to the folks.
writing to the church said for I have delivered or I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus the same light in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he break it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance of me this bread represents the broken body of Jesus and the stripes that he took upon his back to pay the penalty once and for all for sickness and disease. When we receive this, we're receiving not just the fact that we are in the body of Christ, but we receive his healing power, his healing mercy through the bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus took upon himself the payment, the purchase price for healing for our physical bodies. We thank you, Father, that this is life and health to, to our flesh, medicine as to our bodies. Let's receive the bread. After the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we take this juice that represents your blood. We recognize that it's our redemption. And by our actions... This day in partaking of this Lord's Supper, we declare that we are redeemed from the curse of the law. We're redeemed from sin and transgression and iniquity. We are redeemed unto the righteousness of God. And we are redeemed unto the divine health of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for offering your blood. Let's receive the cup. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, let's all stand together. Let's lift our hands and thank God for this redemptive work that's been accomplished in us. We bless you, Father. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for taking upon yourself the punishment of us all. We thank you for the mutual exchange 
that for sin we are made righteous for sickness we are healed and for poverty we receive abundant provision we worship you father we thank you for making yourself seen and known in these last days in a big way in Jesus name Amen.